0: Welcome to Muskegon History and Beyond with the Lakeshore Museum Center. November eleventh, two 2018 marks the 100th year anniversary of the armistice that ended World War I, or the Great War as it was known at the time. When the war started in 1914, very few could have predicted its scope or the changes it would bring to technology and society. In the early years of the war, Americans followed developments closely, but by April 6, 1917, Congress had declared war on Germany, and Americans and Muskegonites would see these changes firsthand. One of the first things to happen after the declaration of war was to begin recruitment, not only for the regular army, but also for the National Guard unit based in Muskegon. The Muskegon rifles, as they were known prior to the start of the war, were along the American-Mexican border trying to stop raids from Mexican revolutionaries, such as Pancho Villa. In July of 1917, they were called into service for World War I, and they recruited to reach max strength of about 141 to form Company G. They would later become Company L after reorganization and were joined with men from Grand Haven. Company I would also be formed of Muskegon and Big Rapids men. Both of these companies would fight in the 126th Infantry Regiment of the 32nd Division, also known as the Red Arrow Division, for piercing the German lines at the Battle of Marne, which we will come to later. Volunteers for these National Guard companies were plentiful, and youthful exuberance led many a young man to try and sign up before he was allowed. The age at the time was 21, without parental consent. But many parents did consent, and even helped their sons by writing letters to encourage the officers to accept them. This age restriction would be lowered as the numbers of recruits needed was too great, and the draft was started, forcing those who weren't as exuberant to join the fighting as well. Speaking of exuberant, I did want to take a little side note here to mention two sons of Muskegon who became involved in the war even before the United States entry. These two friends, James Bain and Andrew Campbell, traveled to France to join the Lafayette Esquadrale and the Lafayette Flying Corps. These were aerial squadrons made up of Americans who wanted to get involved in the war and trained to become pilots, flying planes over France. Unfortunately, both these men would pay the ultimate price, with Campbell dying first and Bain a few months later. The story of these Americans in these squadrons is well-remembered, however, and has been shown in film several times, with the most recent movie being Flyboys, released in 2006. The type of training that Campbell and Bain might have received can be learned from another Michigan resident, George Stone, who'd be sent to Texas to train on a bomber. Quote, work here makes it possible to enjoy several kinds of weather. On the ground it is hot, at 6,000 feet it is just right, but when you reach 10,000 feet it is real cold. Sounds a lot like a Michigan April to me. Stone also has a very dry sense of humor when he talks about the engine starting process for those bombers. Quote, one man grabs the prop and extends his hand to the second. The latter joins his hand with the third. When the first man spins the prop, the other two pull him away. This is because the suction is so great that men have been drawn right into the live prop, and when they do, they generally visit the hospital. In another letter to his parents, he mentions a course in life insurance, or gunnery school as it might be called by the army. Stone's letters would have been well received not only by his parents, but also to the chronicle readers in which it was published in. Airplanes were a very new technology at the time of the war, and very few had encountered them, much less flown in them or knew how they worked. Besides Stone, other Muskegon men would be sent to the Air Corps or even the Balloon Corps. The majority, though, would be sent to Camp Custer in Kalamazoo for training in the infantry. At the camp, the men learned how to march, take orders, use their weapons, and to get trained for their various roles. However, when you get that many people together in a small place, disaster is never far off. One of the biggest problems at these training camps was disease, and many young men, including George Atkins of Muskegon, fell victim at camp to flu or pneumonia, and never recovered. Another Muskegon resident perished when the barracks he was staying in caught on fire. Adjusting to the army life is hard for many of the men, and they missed the homes and their family. According to the Chronicle, many applied for an exemption from the draft, but the Board of Muskegon only granted a quarter of those requests. This tells us that there are many who did not want to get involved, but their reasons or situations weren't deemed acceptable. Potentially in an effort to shame or to keep the public informed, the Chronicle would print lists of those who had applied for exemption and the result of their rulings. As you might imagine, most objected to the draft for family reasons because they had children and wives that they needed to support or elderly parents who needed care. Some of these reasons were accepted, but for many, they were not. As a result of this, you get stories of men who dodged the draft or went AWOL from camp. These names would be posted in the paper, much like a Wild West bandit wanted for a crime. Those who were caught would also be featured in the paper, such as Herbert Cooley, who went a roll from camp because he wanted to see his family one last time before he was sent to Georgia for final training. This would indeed prove the last time that he would see his family, as he would die in France. War is full of tragedies such as this. Once the men finished training, the dangerous trip to France began. Before the United States joined the war, cargo ships were leaving America laden with supplies to sell the Allies, in particular the British. The Germans had been trying a strategy to isolate Britain and starve them out by using submarines, another new technology at the time which certainly must have seemed a lot like science fiction. The island siege was working and food and materials were becoming scarce in England, but the United States would continue to provide supplies which led to German subs sinking American ships. These actions would turn public opinion in the United States strongly against the Germans and led to a declaration of war. All this to say that then crossing the ocean in a troop transport was extremely dangerous as ships made excellent targets. To counter this danger, the convoy system was set up in which the larger groups of ships instead of individuals would cross together. This was not without any danger though, as a letter from Sergeant Russell Gould to his father describes. One afternoon about four o'clock, I had just taken my men and gone on watch in the aft port side of the ship and had just said to one of my boys on the lookout, keep a sharp watch today because we're getting pretty close to where they'll attack us if they're going to when the siren whistle on the big boat to our left began to blow the sub-signal warning. I never saw such turmoil of excitement before. Our boat turned to the left, and the big boat to our left turned to the right and caught ahead across of us, missing us by about a 100 feet, and as fast as the gunners could, they were firing over our ship. The sub had been sighted out in front of us, and behind the cruiser and the rear gunners of the cruiser had sighted it at once and began firing also. It sank and came up in a short time, but by that time the formation of the squadron had been broken, and it came up inside our circle of boats. The cruiser and our rear gunner fired, but neither seemed to reach a vital spot. Just then, the gunner on the boat that had passed our bows fired a non-ricocheting explosive shell, which landed square on the periscope of the sub, and pieces flew into the air, and great bubbles of oil came up as the sub went down. When the sub was blown up, you would have thought that the boys were at a football game by the way that they yelled. The destination of these convoys was either France or England. Once they arrived, the troops were organized and given some more training and sent to their place on the line. The 32nd Division that the local Muskegon Guard troops were in would eventually get put on the front and be part of the Battle of Marne. Corporal Martin Hildebrand was at that battle and gives an account of it. We lay at the bottom of a hill, and the Huns, a nickname for the Germans, were in the woods above the hill. At 5 o'clock in the morning, we got orders to take the woods. We had already lost a few men, and each one of us wondered if we would ever come down that hill alive again. No one said a word. Here and there a fellow would shake the other fellow's hand. Each minute was like an hour, but at last we started up the hill. Then we began to shout, and commands came down the line as if we were in a football game at Hackley Field. Every fellow was in line with a curse on his lips for the Hun. The rifles spat fire, our automatics opened up, and the battle was on. I fell with a bullet in my leg. My gunner went down. Then the other one. I lay there and saw them enter the woods. Our company was rather thinned out by that time. He continues. We boys who were wounded had to crawl through a rain of bullets to get back, and many poor fellows got hit trying to find the first aid station. There were tears of joy in our eyes when we met at the dressing station, and handshakes could be seen and exclamations, God, I'm glad to see you alive, could be heard from all over. Afterwards, we began to think of the fellow pals who never came down the hill. They died a noble death. Another Muskegonite, Corporal Ray Chartrand, was also at the Battle of Marne and relayed his experience. In falling back, we had to recross the river in a different place. The Germans had stretched barbed wire under the water in this place, and I got caught in the wire. And never did I come closer to being drowned, but I did not lose my head. I took off my belt and unloosened my pack and threw them in the water and finally got across. By that time, I had lost my platoon. I found a shell hole, and I lay there until I heard moaning. I looked out and quite a distance away I saw a wounded American. I crawled out and dragged him in with me in the same shell hole, unloosened his belt and opened his first aid pack and fixed him up the best way I could. Corporal Chartrand waited in that shell hole several days with the wounded man who didn't want to leave it. Eventually hunger and fear of a German attack running over their position made Chartrand try the daring return to the American trenches. Instead of waiting for night time to come, I crawled out in broad daylight to try and get to the railroad track which was exactly halfway between the German and the American lines. This place would be called No Man's Land during the war, and it was really a bad place to be. I had to crawl about 300 yards in high grass. I crawled and got to the track, but now came the hardest job of all, where I had to go over the track right out in the open for about a 100 yards. So I got up and ran as fast as I could. I was making for a big shell hole. I got about halfway when a German sniper detected me and shot at me three times but I believe I must have ran faster than his bullets could travel, for I got to that shell hole safely. That night, Chartrand would make it to the American lines. These letters sent to relatives became the outlet for many soldiers to help deal with what they were seeing and experiencing. Letters from home, though, were even more important to the morale of the troops and to help keep them grounded in what they were fighting for. Private Harry Pennington wrote of this to his wife. Quote, I have a picture on the wall. It is called No Letters. It shows four fellows in a dugout reading their letters and one poor fellow, who did not receive any mail, sitting out on top with the shells bursting all around him. And I know that he does not care which shell carries his number, as that is how it goes when there is no letters. They are half of this fight. Pennington later encourages his wife to write often and to tell everyone else to write as well. The vast distance these letters had to travel and the amazing volume that had to be handled caused many delays and issues. Parents worried greatly if they heard no word for a while, but if their sons were on the front line, writing was nearly impossible to do and to get the letter out safely was just as hard. The information that could be shared was restricted as things such as location, towns, and specific events were censored. Gilbert Klinkner decided to wait and tell his family more of the war in person instead of in letters. Quote, I have been on the most active front in France and have seen what I call a great deal of war. It would take a long time to write you what I've been through and seen lately so I will not attempt it. I'll wait till I get home by a good warm fire where I'll be comfortable. That is something I haven't seen since I left home. Corporal Klinkner would not make it to the warm fire to tell his story. This letter would reach his parents in October of 1918, weeks after his death. However, they would not be notified of his death until January of 1919. It's hard to imagine the feeling of receiving a letter from a loved one after they have passed, and I can imagine it became a cherished item. The situation also played out in the opposite way, with parents receiving a letter from the government telling of the passing of their son, only to receive a letter from said son in the hospital dated days after their supposed death. Either way, all of this had to play with your mind, and the coming of the mailman could bring such a change to your life you had to hold your breath opening the mailbox. In an age with everything instant, I think this uncertainty and delay would make us all go a bit mad. For those on the home front, there was a lot of pressure to produce goods for the war effort and to make sure nothing was wasted so the soldiers could get everything. One article I stumbled across to my research in this topic piqued my curiosity. I am still unsure if it was met as tongue-in-cheek and gave everyone a good laugh, or if it was a serious article. This article from July 1917 calls for the women of Muskegon to eat a new food, that food being swordfish. Why swordfish? Well, the article mentions how it's a great source of food and gives you everything you need to power your brain, but more importantly, nothing is wasted from it because it calls for women to go to any quote-unquote up-to-date hardware store and get a swordfish file. I have apparently never been to an up-to-date hardware store, but they're to use this file to sharpen and shape the swordfish's sword into an actual sword which could be shipped to the boys on the front. It even goes so far as to list the steps necessary. The crazy thing about this is I looked this up, and yes, people do make swords out of swordfishes. Even crazier, when I was talking to our archivist about this, he told me we have one in the museum's collection. Sadly, we don't know when it's from, so it could be from this period and from someone in Muskegon listening to this advice, or it could have been one that someone made just as a art. However, the logistics of shipping swordfish to Muskegon during wartime with limited resources makes this seem a little more sarcastic, like a You could be doing even more, ladies, article, rather than a serious one, but I will leave it up to you to judge. Not all of Muskegon's women stayed in town making swords during the war. Several young women from the town took jobs with the Red Cross Salvation Army, or as Gertrude Skeleton did, the National Catholic War Council, whose job was to rebuild Europe and to take care of the people. The Hackley Manual Training School Nurses Program trained several to go overseas and work at the hospitals, including Florence Hanley who wrote to the Chronicle about the work she was doing, including treating those wounded from gas attacks and from those suffering from trench foot, which she calls the hardest and most common thing to deal with. Trench foot develops from having your feet in wet and cold conditions for extended periods of time, and over that time, the tissues in your foot will begin to rot away. It is easy to see how big a problem this was and how hard it was to avoid when you hear a description of some of the trenches these men were in. This comes from a letter printed in the Chronicle from Private Eugene Sharkoff. We went up to the front line trenches at about eight o'clock at night. We got our positions about an hour later. The trenches were shallow and it was raining hard so that from two to four inches of water stood in the bottom, making an extremely sticky mixture with the clay in which the trenches were dug. It was a miserable night standing in the cold water, leaning against a wet, very wet trench with rain pouring down continuously. We were covered from head to foot in clay. By the fall of 1918, most were starting to get a sense that the war was coming to an end, but there was still hard fighting from both sides. The number of Germans who saw the end coming, though, increased, and more and more Germans were electing to surrender and become prisoners. Lillian Fulmer, who was working for the Salvation Army in France, sums up what a lot of the soldiers on both sides were feeling at this stage. Quote, My feelings were mixed, hatred for the powers that caused them to fight, and sympathy for those who are not responsible but who are compelled to take part in this war. As the war came to a close and the armistice was signed, Captain Behrens writes to his mother in Muskegon how he and his men have been changed by what they saw and experienced. Quote, dead men were a common sight, so much that we only spoke of them when the proportionate number exceeded the average. We held no fears, for fear, as a human sense, was dead. We did take cover from shelling, and an air raid kept us awake, but as actual fear was concerned, it was absent. Of the signing of the armistice, Barron said, There was no excitement, for excitement was dead. Comments like this make you wonder what these soldiers are going through and how it will affect them later in life. How do you recover from being affected by something so intense? Now, not all felt so little emotion as Captain Barron's. Men from Muskegon who were in London and Paris on November 11th when the armistice was signed talk about cheers louder and more sustained than anything they have ever heard. In London, the party lasted through the night and into the next day. With the war over, soldiers began to think of what's next, mainly the cleanup of Europe and the occupation of Germany. Lieutenant Scott Wood, in a letter to his mother, wrote, I wrote you yesterday that the war was over, but I hardly believe it myself until I saw it today in the French papers. I don't expect to get home in under six months. We may have some occupational work in Germany, but the main thing is the war is over. I miss something all day. At about noon... I finally realized it was the roar of the big guns. The silence seems almost uncanny. The destruction of the war was vast. By November 11, 1918, millions had died, and the pockmarked shell holes, trenches, and bunkers dug scarred the landscape. Even today, these scars can be seen in the villages and fields of France. Captain Barons, whom I quoted above, toured parts of France after the war and reported on its condition. The town which I did reach confronted me with a sign. This was Villa Carbonel. In some towns the ruin is complete and property lines are entirely destroyed. The town of Albert is an example. There is not one wall standing, although it was a town built of stone and brick, and in every modern way. The cathedral, with all of its statuary, is a pile of brick and stone. Remember too that the people, when leaving, left all their possessions in their homes. These are all gone too. It will take months to cart away all the stone and rubbish. Even though bullets and shells had stopped flying in France, the absence of death still eluded the men. Henry C. Strand would arrive in France on November 9th, having just finished training. While waiting to be sent back to the United States, he was playing a game of baseball and was hit in the head with a pitch. The base hospital that he was at was unable to save him, and Henry C. Strand died five months after the end of the war in a hospital in France. His parents, upon receiving a telegram from the army, expected it to tell them of their son's arrival back in the United States, only to have that joy turned into overwhelming grief when its contents were read. Michigan men were also selected to be sent to Russia near the war's end and after its completion to fight the revolutionaries there. These men would fight in Russia until July of 1919, when all troops were finally recalled to the United States. This would include the famous Polar Bear Regiment, which many of you have heard about, maybe you have seen the statue on the Causeway Memorial of the Bear. It has been 100 years since the signing of the Armistice to cease hostilities in World War I. At the time, many thought wars such as this would never be fought again due to the scars left behind on the nations and the men fighting it. However, that was not to be the case. The change in technology and the way wars were fought with it have changed forever from this point on. Residents from Muskegon County played many roles in the war, and many paid the ultimate price in that role. In May of 1919, the men of the 32nd Division returned home to Muskegon, Michigan, and marched through the Victory Arch on Western Avenue to throngs of cheering crowds. Their war was over. I would like to thank you for listening to this longer episode of Muskegon History and Beyond. There are just so many aspects to World War I and to the experiences of people here in Muskegon and those abroad that it was difficult to narrow those experiences down. But narrow it down, I had to. If you're interested in learning more about Muskegon's contribution and to see items from the war, please stop by our main museum building and check out the World War I display case in the main hallway. I will also be giving a presentation on November 13th, starting at 6 p.m., looking at the home front, industry, and soldiers during the war and seeing how it affected all of them. If you'd like to sign up for that, please click the link in the description or go to our website, lakeshoremuseum.org, to sign up.